Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In 2014, citizens in Idaho and Montana celebrated the 50th anniversary of the Wilderness Act. That's the law that secured protection for 8 million acres of wild forests and mountains in those two states. In his new book, out from University of Utah Press, Where Roads Will Never Reach, environmental historian Frederick Swanson tells the story of how decades before the Wilderness Act, ordinary citizens halted the federal government's resource development juggernaut of the 50s and 60s, safeguarding some of the last strongholds of grizzly bear, mountain goat, elk, trout, salmon, and steelhead. Swanson says that from the Idaho's uh, Frank Church River of No Return to Montana's scapegoat and Great Bear, the wilderness areas of the northern Rockies serve as a record of lasting public concern and as a model for citizens working to protect today's threatened landscapes. Frederick Swanson uh, joins us from, I believe, the Salt Lake City area. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be on your show. Uh, So you say in your uh, biography here on your website, which, by the way, is uh, Fred Swanson. Uh, let's see, Fred Swanson uh, books.com. Uh, some good stuff there. That uh, you, your family moved from the mid- Midwest to the Pacific Northwest. This was your introduction to some of these lands. It was. I came out when I was 11 years old to, to the great forests of the Pacific Northwest. And then in 1974, I moved to Montana to begin graduate work. And that's when I was introduced to these tremendous wilds and wilderness areas up in Idaho and Montana that form the subject of my book. And you uh, worked, of course, for uh, uh, editor, I guess, publications designer, part of that time in Montana. Then you decided to write full-time, I guess. Yes, I I had worked on a number of projects involving uh, the environment in Montana, everything from coal strip mines to even to shopping malls. But I always wanted to write about some of the issues that really meant a lot to me, and, and that included the the great wild and wilderness areas that you have up there. And so when the chance came along to work as a full-time freelancer, well, I took it. Mm. And you say you focus on wilderness areas, national parks, and national forests. So this is a very interesting book. Uh, let, let's jump in here. You, you uh, uh, Kind of the genesis for this is the post-war period, people returning and, uh, I guess, getting in a bigger way out into the, uh, the backcountry. Yes, the the forests up in those states in the northern Rockies in Idaho and Montana were always important to people as a place to go hunting, fishing, uh, make a living off the land. But after World War II, you, you kind of saw these states take on an extra prominence as some of the last strongholds of the the, the true wilderness that we had in this country. And, and a lot of people loved to do the backcountry hunt, uh, to pack into these areas on horseback, to camp for days or weeks at a time, and really to have a kind of an experience that just was missing from so much of the rest of the country. And this is a powerful idea as well, isn't it? Especially in this time, uh, uh, people worried that this this kind of world was disappearing, had essentially disappeared from much of America. That's right. And outside of Alaska, we, we still have a, a great many areas. I believe that there are more than 760 classified wilderness areas in our country. But some of the largest, in fact, four of the five largest wilderness areas on our national forests in the 48 states are in those two states. You mentioned the Frank Church River of No Return. There's the Selway Bitterroot. And another is this whole complex of wild country surrounding the Bob Marshall wilderness in, in Montana. 
Uh, it's interesting that reading the book, the Forest Service, as this went along, I guess, 50s and 60s, went from being heroes to a lot of these outdoor people to the opponents. That was an interesting thing that I uncovered when I was doing my research in, in a lot of these archives, is that in the 1930s, in fact, the Forest Service had set up a number of what they called primitive areas, places like the Selway Bitterroot. And some of these were large areas of more than a million acres. And there were individuals in the agency that felt very strongly that there ought to be some legacy of wild landscapes left in the national forest, even as they were moving more and more toward a timber orientation. But it was after World War II that you had this this great rush to develop the forest as sources of wood fiber. And that's when the conflicts really began. And these are powerful forces, of course, uh, extracting more and more timber to fuel the post-war economy. That's right. As I write in the book, uh, it, it was like the Forest Service wanted to take on its role alongside, say, the Corps of Engineers and the Bureau of Reclamation as a provider of resources to the nation. And they had a vision, and I, I have to credit them uh, that, that it was a sincere attempt to make our national forests productive of wood fiber. Uh, I, I contest the idea in my book that the Forest Service was somehow the handmaiden of the timber industry. In fact, what I found was is that in many cases, the Forest Service officers were almost begging the timber industry to build more mills so that they would have a place to sell their timber. Hmm. Now, uh, of course, the one of the most contentious arguments, right, is over roads. The timber industry needs roads. These outdoors people could see that if you build roads, it's not going to be remote. It's not going to. It's going to change the character of the place. Yes, and that's that's why I titled the book what I did. People did object to clear cutting, but the primary, uh, I guess you would say, the, the primary loss of wild character in any landscape is when the roads come in. And in the northern Rockies, this was very much tied up with wildlife and, and habitat for wildlife. People have been using these areas for decades for their backcountry hunt, for fishing, uh, simply as a place to go to camp. And once the roads came in, they could see how the elk would migrate over the next hill. And pretty soon there weren't that many more hills to migrate over. So they seized on the, the roadless aspect of these areas as something key to preserve. One of the, I don't know, I found this somewhat comical. I guess in, in, in hindsight, you could see this would, was coming. Forest Service officials, I guess, were you know going into towns like uh, Kalispell and Helena, Bozeman, and they expected that uh, I, they didn't expect the firestorm of opposition that that they certainly did meet. Yes, that's true. I, I write in the book how they were as startled as an elk on a mountain logging road when they <laughs> found out that their plans, which they had invested a great deal of effort in, uh, just were not going over in some of these towns. They, the Forest Service had this vision of a carefully managed forest with high standard gravel roads leading through these valleys and up onto high ridges. And there would be picnic areas and campgrounds and scenic pullouts. And these officials thought, well, the public's going to love this. They can drive up to an area instead of having to ride a horse back in there for a week. Mm -hmm. But what they found is that these 
these horse people, uh, there were hikers and backpackers then, really cherished that experience, and they didn't want to lose that. Now, I, I imagine there were some part of the populace that did like this idea, I'm guessing, right? You could drive right up to whatever, you know, nice scenic area. Of course. Uh, motorized recreation was, was really taking off in the years after the, the war. So it was an actual conflict. Uh, however, I think it's safe to say that among a lot of people in those states, even today, there's there's just a, a sense of how important that backcountry is. And sure, you or I might like to take our family out to a, a nice campground by a lake, but a lot of them had a feeling that, yeah, we want to have some country back over the hills, too, where, where it's a little harder to get into. And there's a certain mythos associated with that, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So, But many of them did like to do that. That's where they went to yeah. get their elk in the fall. Uh, do you think that's still the case today? It's it's an idea. It's an ideal, as you could say, a mythos. It, you know, I might never go to wilderness area, but I want it there. Uh, it, it definitely is, uh, all through the West and here in Utah as well. I'm getting to be an age where I can't get into some of this country as easily as I, I used to, but still the idea that I can pull up to the edge of it and look in and sort of see nature operating under its own forces, its own timetable, that, that has been a powerful idea. Now, the way this was sold, I don't know if this was just, just came about because of who made up this constituency, outdoors people, but it seemed to resonate with people, and they were selling this in terms of habitat for wildlife. Yes, it, it was truly a, a broad-based citizen movement, and I, and I don't think it's a cliché to call it that. As I read through all of these letters and statements and, and hearing testimony, you, you had people from all walks of life. They weren't just outsiders. They weren't just wealthy folks. In fact, quite a lot of them, I would say, were pretty close to the economic margins. And, and for them, hunting and fishing was... Uh, partly a matter of, of putting meat on the table. So I, I call it a, a way of life. This was, you might call it a resource commons that people had been using for many years. And there was a kind of conservatism. They didn't want to see this change rapidly under this industrial forest paradigm that was coming on. So you write that, uh, that these people feared the forest might no longer offer a chance to track a wily bull elk across a mountain clearing on a crisp October day, or even to stand on top of windswept limestone escarpment and look across miles of undeveloped country, knowing there were grizzly bears out there. But as you say, a way of life. Yes, and so much of it was bound up with, with wildlife and, and wild creatures. And not just big game. These folks like to hunt and fish and, and do those sorts of things, but I think a lot of them then and certainly still today just get a, a, a great feeling out of knowing that there's well, there's wolverines roaming that country and uh, wolves, as controversial as those are. It's all part of this feeling that nature's in charge out there, and it's not something that we necessarily manage. Hmm. Let's take a break. When we come back, more with uh, Fred Swanson. His uh, book is uh, titled Where uh, Roads Will Never... Uh, where roads will never reach. And we're talking about the establishment of wilderness. This is uh, leading up to the Wilderness Act, which uh, celebrated its 50th anniversary in 2014. Well before that, there is a, uh, a groundswell, ordinary citizens, 
who opposed uh, some powerful development forces and were instrumental in uh, creation of wilderness areas. And uh, this book is treating the Northern Rockies. When we come back, I'll have Frederick Swanson uh, tell me about some of these people following the break. What do stories tell us about who we are? We all want affirmations that our lives have meaning. And nothing does a greater affirmation than when we connect through stories. It can cross the barriers of time and allow us to experience the similarities between ourselves and through others, real and imagined. I'm Guy Raz, framing the story that's on the next TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Did you know that you can open a savings account for your children as soon as you have their social security numbers? Start saving for their education today. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the College of Science at Utah State University, where students step beyond the classroom participating in advanced research in the lab, field, and outer space. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information at usu.edu science. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're talking with Frederick Swanson. He's an environmental historian. His new book is out from University of Utah Press. It's called Where Roads Will Never Reach. And uh, it tells the story of a relative handful of citizens living amid the forests of northern Rockies, how they halted the federal resource bureaucracy's plans to develop large expanses of roadless land within their figurative uh, backyards. Frederick Swanson, you write that uh, these people helped achieve something we do not often see in America, the establishment of a durable public policy with widespread popular support, despite the opposition of a respected federal agency and its powerful client industries. And as I was reading this, it was kind of tinged with a bit of nostalgia for me, given how the, the fights have intensified over the years, and it just seems, seems so polarized now. Wilderness always has been a polarizing issue, and it was back then as well. One of the purposes I had in writing this book is to show that uh, the, the degree of conflict we experience today over public lands is nothing new. Back in the 1940s, as I opened my book, there were tremendous uh, fights over dams in the northern Rocky states. There was a strong constituency for uh, flood control and hydropower, and it felt kind of lonely for some of these uh, sportsmen and outdoors people to stand up at a meeting and say, wait a minute, we've been fishing this stream for 25 years, my family and I, and I don't want it to become some big reservoir. So tell me, maybe you could pick a couple of people, uh, tell me about them, uh, just personalize this for us. Sure. One of the fellows I was really drawn to when I was doing this research was an outfitter named Tom Edwards. And he worked out of a guest ranch up in the Ovando, Montana area, uh, east of Missoula. But he was an art teacher, actually, in Helena, and he had a Master's of Fine Arts, very highly educated fellow. And he would take these people out on these long pack trips up into the Bob Marshall country and just kind of open up the wild country with this this sensitivity to the land and its creatures. 
he coined this memorable phrase, the hush of the land, and he applied this to what it was like to camp by a mountain lake and listen to the birds in the evening and sleep under the stars, and you wake up in the morning and the mists are rolling off the lake. And to him, it was just this tremendous experience. And what he did, I thought, that was kind of innovative is that he tried to put a, a value on that. He said that this has an economic worth as surely as the timber that you could harvest from it. So he was trying to create a, a kind of economic value for this sort of experience. Hmm. Uh, you say one one thing that uh, these men and women prized above all else, the sense of remoteness. Yes, um, and, and I think that's something that appeals to any of us who have spent a little time in the backcountry and maybe hiked into a trail or canoed down a river. There's just a feeling you get, and time after time people would, would express this. There was a a uh, fellow who, who worked on the, some of the same issues called Cecil Garland, and he would write very memorably about what it was like to stand on a ridge and listen to an elk bugle on the other side of the mountain, and he would get out his elk call and you know uh, sound his sound, and the elk would bugle back, and he would go to bed at night of just filled with this sense that here is the kind of country that that he couldn't experience anywhere else. Hmm. And and I think anyone who's been, say, in Zion, in the middle of summer on the shuttle, um, you know, can, can understand this <laughs> this desire for a sense of remoteness. Absolutely. And, and here's where the whole matter of public policy comes in. We do have our national parks, which in some places are... are well, they're very popular, and, and for a reason. It, it's great to see people out enjoying those trails, taking their kids and their families on them. I find that I don't mind uh, seeing people out enjoying the woods like that. But it's also good, I think, to, to have places where maybe with a little expenditure of sweat we can get farther away, and our, our company is the wind and the birds and the streams and not so much of our own noise. I, I call it getting away from the machines and the screens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to come back to this uh, this fight for wilderness and 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 how this uh, you know group of citizens went about it. But I think now would be a, a good time to skip ahead to an interesting essay that you wrote on your website. This uh, recounts a trip you took to Scorpion Gulch, and it you talk about some of these issues. Um, for example, a scorpion gold, I think this is in the Glen Canyon National Recreation Area? It is. Uh, but it's kind of out of, out of the way because there isn't anything all that spectacular. Uh, you say a friend of yours calls such places second best country. I've always liked those kind of places, and I, and I like that term because if you don't necessarily need to see the most spectacular place, the, the tallest waterfall or the most amazing slot canyon, and there's there's a tremendous number of places that are simply beautiful, they're quiet, they're a little bit remote, and you can find a great deal of solitude there. Mm. And this is one of those places I, I described in southern Utah down in the Escalante Canyons. And it's, I don't know, it was, it's, it's a couple of days in? You, you're taking this trip with your wife and, and teenage daughter. Yes, and, and our, our daughter has 
joined us on these trips ever since she was an infant, really. And uh, many times we, we revisit them just to see how it looks in her eyes. So, so I think family outings are one of the, the neatest way to experience the wilderness. And it's, it doesn't have to be something extreme that you need ropes and, and carabiners for, mm-hmm. so to speak. Yeah, and you, you, can, you can trust the people you drive back to Escalante, and, and you see people at a, at a much more accessible uh, site. And, you know, ATVs and, and uh, places people can just drive to, essentially. And you're, you're, carrying, you're comparing it and contrasting these two experiences. And, and they're enjoying it, too, in, in, in whatever way they choose. I, I think we have to be careful to somehow zone our land so that there are a variety of recreational experiences. Uh, no, no doubt you've been reading people like Richard Louvre who talk about the importance of getting our, our children, our young people, out to see what nature is like. And you can do that uh, on a vehicle. You can do that uh, car camping. But I think some of the most meaningful experiences, at least within our family and for our daughter, have been when you're kind of face-to-face with with nature on its own terms. And to do that, personally, I feel you have to get away from from, uh, the vehicles. You also talk about something we certainly do see in the media and in advertising and in a lot of the companies, which is that what's being pushed, at least with the young people, is sort of an extreme experience. Yes, and, and I can see the excitement for that. When I was younger, I, I liked to do mountain climbing and those sorts of things. And, and it's great. It made anything that gets people out into that country. But I'm a little concerned that the focus on what's often called performance and, and driving one's body as hard as you can, it's easy to lose sight of what's out there in the woods and in the desert, of, of the birds that are singing, of the little things crawling in the grass. And that may sound a bit funny to some people, but I know for me it's just so important to connect with that other world. And that sometimes means moving a little bit slower, a little more deliberately. Use the word contemplation. Yes, and, and I'm, I'm not a mystic, but... I don't think there's any finer experience than simply leaning back against the trunk of a ponderosa pine up in the Uintas on the shore of a lake and just listening to the waves lap on the shore and the wind up in the, in the pine needles. Uh, to me, that's just so restorative. And you say, you end the, the essay, uh, you say one way to help, you've got to get this middle way you're talking about, uh, is to make wilderness travel simple again. What are you talking about there? Again, I'm a little bit concerned that uh, this emphasis on extreme adventures that we see in so much of our advertising could be a little off-putting to people who just want to go out there for a day and maybe go up into the Wasatch or down to some of our national parks and have a simpler sort of, of outing. And I think it behooves those of us who are promoting uh, this country, the wilderness experiences, to also make it clear that you can have a tremendously enjoyable weekend or week or a day without doing anything that's going to uh, you know, put you on death's doorstep. Uh, 
just just get yourself out there, look around, and and it's all there to enjoy. If you just joined us, we're talking with uh, Frederick Swanson. He's an environmental historian. His latest book is Where Roads Will Never Reach. It's out from University of Utah Press. It tells the story of how decades before the Wilderness Act, ordinary citizens halted the federal government's resource development juggernaut of the 50s and 60s. Telling that story, talking about wilderness and the outdoors in general, you're welcome to join the conversation. We'd love to get your perspective. Maybe you could suggest a wilderness a place to go or one of these second best places. It'd be interesting to uh, t- to talk about. Uh, the number is 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. You can join us on our email at upraxcess at gmail.com. That's upraxcess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter uh, at Utah Public Radio. Use the hashtag Access Utah. Uh, so I wonder, uh, sort of uh, skipping ahead a to your afterward, uh, you're talking about, you tell this story, and we'll tell more of it as we go along, of how these citizens uh, halted the wilderness well before the Wilderness Act. Then you get in the 80s and 90s and some of the battles there. Then you bring it up to uh, today, and actually looking forward, uh, you say an additional perspective one that accounts for human needs might be beneficial. A truly visionary approach to land preservation would show how human societies might coexist in large wilderness areas. How, how would that, uh, what's your vision there? This, I think, is, is the, the key issue that's facing us today in, in terms of public land use. Is, is we can't simply wall off large sections of our landscape as some kind of biological preserve and and expect people to support this. Uh, wilderness has always existed in a social context, and if people do not find that these areas are personally meaningful to them, then I think we will not have the support we need to protect them. So I guess my feeling is, is that we have to continue to show the, the human value, the value to us of being in wild country and how we can do that without, without destroying it, without abusing the land. So to me, that means in large part we have to examine how we take care of our non-wilderness lands as well, how we harvest timber, how we uh, graze uh, lands and, and things like that. It all has to work together. We have to be able to extract resources where we need them in order to be able to leave some lands alone. We have a caller, uh, Dave and Logan has joined us. Uh, Dave, welcome to the program. Thank you. Go ahead with your question. Mike. Okay, my question for the author is, do you believe that there is room for change within the current wilderness laws that would still, that could allow for broader use, but still uh, maintain an acceptable level of protection. And my example is the current, the way it's currently written with the not allowing mechanized anything. So a good example of that would be mountain bikes are currently not allowed in wilderness areas. Um, do you believe that there is some room for that or something like that where it's not motorized and it's under human power that could be allowed where it would still offer an acceptable amount of protection? Thank you. Okay. Uh, Thanks, Dave. Well, it's a good question. And the the framers of the Wilderness Act back in the 50s and 60s made very clear that what they were trying to do was to keep mechanized influences out of these areas. 
and mountain bikes didn't exist then, but that still falls, I feel, under the same rubric. Now, there's a great many of people who enjoy doing this, and I think we need plenty of trails and places outside of wilderness areas to pursue these pursuits. But as, as uh, one friend of mine up in Montana, uh, who's a horse person, put it, uh, you can see so much more of the country moving at the pace of a horse than you can with any faster conveyances. And I, and I think that's the, the, the issue that we need to keep bringing up. The, the purpose for which we're using the land. Yes. Okay. Um, so to go back to, to some of the ideas we were talking about, would, would Dave certainly fit in there? Uh, how do we balance all of these these needs? So you're talking about a, a full range plan, not just wilderness, but but how we use all of our public lands. Yes, it's it's become clear to me that if if all we're doing is setting aside some areas in the backcountry up in the mountains and saying that's where our wilderness is, and then going whole hog and abusing the rest of our lands, that we're we're still going to wind up in the same place. Mm-hmm. I was recently out in Oregon at a, a, a research site in the Oregon Cascades, and they conducted timber harvesting extremely carefully there. They were coming up with innovative new ways of, of harvesting timber that that left it in better shape for wildlife and for fisheries and for the streams. And I think some of these techniques need to be applied more widely so that we can uh, harvest the resources we need from more land and that, I think, will allow us to leave some of these wilderness areas alone. Hmm. You also bring up uh, an idea of partition. This is one of a hotly debated issue. You, the way you phrase it, can recreation areas be partitioned so that places for motorized adventure and for silent contemplation both exist in abundance? Well, yes. Well, well here in Salt Lake City, I can look right up at the Wasatch Mountains, and there's a whole variety of, of trails up there. Some of them are open, a lot of them are open to mountain bikes, um, and many of them are, are basically places you, you go hiking. There are downhill ski areas, there's a few areas to cross-country skis. This is zoning, and, and it's very difficult to work out. There, it's a seesaw of, of interests, but that's really the only way we have to, to try to come up with a variety of uses where, that can coexist. I have to say here that the Forest Service in past years has had the, uh, this notion of multiple use, that everybody can use every acre for every purpose, and it just can't happen. You, you have to segregate mm. things to some extent. Mm. And that's that gets us back to wilderness, right? At, at a land designated as wilderness, I guess the argument would go that the minute you partition that off, at least part of it, for multiple use, then its essential character has changed. And this came up over and over again as I was reading the statements of these people up in Idaho and Montana going back 50 or 60 years. They, they realized that when the roads came in, the wildlife left, or much of it did. Uh, the fisheries were, were overused. And it, we have to be careful not to just limit this to recreation. Uh, I was surprised to find people talking uh, back in the 1950s about things like grasslands and prairie habitats and the importance of having areas that weren't necessarily recreational in orientation, but they safeguarded ecological values that were, were 
being impinged on in too many other areas. We uh, looks like we're receiving another call. We'll we'll go to that call as soon as we uh, we get it in here. Uh, one thing you write about in your essay this uh, struck me. You you say that the conservation movement needs people to be out, <laughs> to be outside, right? To to be enjoying this, uh, not on their video games. Persons raised on video games, they're they're not going to join the conservation movement. That's right, and 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 we're seeing more of this kind of discussion happening, and it's it's very welcome. Personally, I've been been very gratified to be taking hikes up in the Wasatch over the last few years and see a lot of families with fairly young children and teenagers out enjoying the woods. And uh, you know, sometimes they'll kind of excuse themselves as a big family walks past me. But I'm thinking, hey, this is great. This is what we need. Uh, no one's going to fight for nature unless they know nature. Let's go to Tom and Vernal. Glad you joined the program, Tom. Yeah, I'm glad that uh, the speaker brought up a bit about multiple use because that's uh, that's a misused term that's driven me nuts for for decades. My experience with my first experience with wilderness was in the Pacific Northwest uh, in the, the Salmon River country, and long ago uh, I learned that multiple use means that many compatible uses are occurring simultaneously, like wildlife, grazing, clean water, hunting and fishing, hiking, and wilderness fits that description. I mean, it has that laundry list of things that that can be extracted, but no timber, no extraction. But people with little sympathy for for wilderness values often try to frame the debate by saying uh, that multiple use means that you have to allow everything on every acre, and it simply isn't true. So I'd kind of like to see us even junk the word, the term multiple use, because I think it it spreads more darkness than light, because people uh, are not using the term correctly. Um, So that's just, just something that seems like it has to be continually brought up in these discussions. Thanks, Tom. Good, Good point. You're so right, and I'm with you on that. And, and you mentioned that wonderful Salmon River country, and, and this this was the scene of, of one of these tremendous battles over over wilderness that led to the designation of the Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness, uh, the largest national forest wilderness in the country. And I think you could talk with many of the people that use that area, and they would tell you that there are a lot of uses occurring in, in that country uh, River rafting, hunting, fishing, camping. Um, part of the question is, is, is uh, some of this country even overused in places? The wilderness is such a valuable resource. Tom, I think you're, I think you're right. Pull it, it, to my view, multiple use has become heavily politicized, and different groups mean different things when they say it. I, I don't know if you have something you'd propose that we use. Oh, oh uh, Tom's no longer with us. So I'll ask uh, Mr. Swanson, what... Uh, I don't know, do you agree with that, and should we use another term? I'd like to go back to what Aldo Leopold wrote about in the 1940s in that wonderful book of his, The Sand County Almanac, and that's uh, talk about a land ethic. What do we need to do as humans to integrate ourselves into the landscape to where we're satisfying our legitimate needs for resources and, and things like wood fiber and minerals, but we're also allowing the land, the soil, the water, the air, the wildlife 
to function in the way that it's intended to. Uh, let's, let's talk about ethics and not what we can extract from the country. We're talking with Frederick Swanson, if you just joined us. His new book is out from University of Utah Press. It's called Where Roads Will Never Reach and tells the story of how decades before the Wilderness Act, ordinary citizens halted the federal government's resource development juggernaut of the 50s and 60s and resulted in wilderness designation. He's talking uh, about the northern Rockies in, in his book. But, of course, this experience, these principles apply to today. And in his afterward, he does bring it forward to today and to the uh, future. Uh, I believe, uh, do we have another call coming in? So this is Bettina from uh, Springdale. Bettina, glad you joined the program. Go ahead. Uh, yes, I was found very interesting. Um, this, the last um, couple of years here in Springdale, the Utah Travel Council has spent millions of dollars advertising all over the country for Zion Bryce and the area and internationally. And we have, this last month, we have been swamped and you saw the um, media saying that we're up 30 percent in travel but in Zion is it's just like two or three backup cars I mean two or three miles of backup cars to get in the gate and the we're starting to have trouble with the narrows having um, trash and and sewage problems um, our infrastructure in the town is in the sewer system is antiquated, yet we've got motel after motel being built. And uh, so can we love an area too much? It's just, it's not sustainable for our town. There are only 500 people in it. And so what would you suggest in that situation? It's a very interesting point that you make. Here we have this this iconic world-class landscape of Zion, and it's drawing people from all over the world. To some extent, I wonder if, if uh, it's partly a matter of just advertising some other areas. There are so many really nice places uh, down there in your country that people don't get into. The, the Kolob section up higher in Zion, uh, further over uh, into the Grand Staircase Escalante. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. There, there are uh, tremendous, wonderful, beautiful areas that, that don't seem to get into the travel brochures, and maybe we need to publicize those a little more. Uh, Bettina, are you still with us? I'm here because it's easy access. Yeah. We have the shuttle system, but the shuttle system has been overwhelmed, and the shuttle drivers have been working 10 to 12 hours a day with hardly any breaks, and... Um, it's just, you know, the park employees there, the park is understaffed because of the politics of Congress, and um, it's just, you know, kind of hurtling to people, you know, that have lived here for years and years are saying, maybe it's time to move, mm-hmm. and just let it turn into a kind of a Disneyland of nature. Yeah, I think, Bettina, the, the, you, you said the word access. Zion is one of the most easily accessed, at least that part yeah. of the park. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, it's, I know that Zion at one point was the last gateway community to a national park that hadn't been commercialized, like, you know, at the South Rim and, and uh, the Grand Canyon but, and Yosemite and such. But the thing with Zion is it's a canyon. Mm-hmm. And there's only one road in, and there's only one road out. 
and the RVs come in, these, you know, long, long RVs, and they go up those switchbacks to the tunnels, and I've seen situations where people have driven their RVs inside the tunnels and have panicked, and the park people have to go in and drive it out for them. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Well, th- thanks for that perspective, Bettina. Appreciate it. Okay. You're welcome. So, Mr. Swanson, I, I guess, you know, access, as she's saying, and, and maybe, you know, but there are plenty of places, as as you say, including in Zion, if you get off the beaten track. Yes, and at other seasons as well. It, it, it's an amazing story that she's telling of, of just how tourism can, can uh, have such an impact on a local community. And I think she's right. It's... it's uh, it's a matter of access, and maybe we need to go back to some of what Edward Abbey was talking about in Desert Solitaire, of, of uh, get out of your car and uh, walk upon the land. It's, it's hard to coax people out of their machines, isn't it? Yeah, it certainly is. certainly is. Uh, we're talking with uh, Frederick Swanson. His new book is Where Roads Will Never Reach. Uh, it's out from University of Utah Press. We have uh, another uh, six or seven minutes left. Time enough for you to uh, get in your call. Hope that you'll give us your perspective. Perhaps you could give us uh, some places to go that are off the beaten track. Uh, the number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us on email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter as well. Uh, Justin in uh, Cache Valley has emailed us. Uh, he He's giving a suggestion. I think he's responding to this idea of how do we get uh, the kids out into nature. Um, and he's saying, how about a wilderness component of every children's education? It's an excellent idea. You know, when I was in the sixth grade out in Oregon, we had a week of, uh, I think it was called uh, the Outdoor Week or something, where we went up to a a state park, actually, and uh, camped in in cabins and spent time out, you know, turning over logs and chasing salamanders and that sort of thing. It wasn't wilderness, but it it really opened my eyes to what was out there. And I think uh, the person's right. This should be a, a... a definite part of, of our whole educational experience. I'd like to return to this side. We talked earlier in the program, you used the word mythos. I've been using the word idea or ideal. Has that changed, do you think? Did, did, when you say wilderness, does, does that conjure up something different from the time period you're treating in your book to today? I think concepts like this evolve. Uh, when, you, when you look uh, back at the... Uh, 18th or 19th century, and, and before wilderness was considered uh, something that was sublime, it was uh, almost a source of terror. You see that in some of the uh, uh, artwork and, and older writings. So, yes, the concepts evolve, uh, and, and I think a corollary to that is that the wilderness itself evolves. This is not a static landscape, there are ecological processes at work. Uh, forest fires, beetles, and as our scientific understanding of wild country uh, has, has increased, we've realized that uh, it's a living laboratory. It can tell us a lot about how the earth operates, and, and maybe that's where our concept, our, our ideal, uh, needs to be going. We uh, have uh, next up Alan in Springdale. Alan, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Yeah, um, good conversation today. Uh, what I wanted to do mainly is, is 
uh, agree with with your guests. Um, I, I'm an avid mountain biker, and I I do uh, some other adventure sports like mountain biking and a little bit of climbing. But uh, but really, there is to me nothing like being uh, in a place where you you can't see any any city lights or uh, hear any noise from from uh, from the road and. Uh, I, you know, I guess uh, I, I wouldn't want to take my mountain bike into the wilderness any more than I'd want to take my MP3 player to church. Um, yeah, I, and I, I guess uh, what what your guest said is is uh, about people seeing more areas. There's there are a lot of places down here in southwestern Utah, for example. Uh, Red Cliffs on the, the flanks of Pine Valley, uh, the, the places that maybe won't get on a postcard the way Zion Park does, but but are still worth seeing. And, and so uh, I hope that uh, maybe uh, people see more of these places will uh, maybe uh, want to conserve also and, and kind of reduce our need for... Um, all this resource extraction because that's ultimately the what's driving the problem I think is um, is too much consumerism and kind of a, a rambling comment but that's that's my thought on it interesting I'll interesting yeah. thank you Alan Thanks. appreciate I, I, appreciate I do that. have to agree with you uh, I suppose a little bit of a risk of revealing a, a, a favorite little secret place here uh, my wife and I this this winter went out to the Pine Valley Mountains out uh, west of Zion and stayed in a little Forest Service cabin, and there were some cross-country ski trails. And I'd never been there before. It was a wonderful area. Uh, so with a little bit of investment of effort and looking at a map and a website, uh, it, it's not that hard to find some places like that out there. Uh, next up is Justin in Hyde Park. Justin, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Do we have Justin? We'll, uh, okay, okay. Uh, call back, Justin. Looks like we maybe have dropped you. So uh, the number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us at upraxis at gmail.com. Just a couple of minutes left, and we hope Justin will call back with his uh, with his comment. So uh, finally, just a couple of minutes left, uh, Frederick Swanson. I wonder what do you what do you take away? You spent a lot of times in letters and journals and uh, and studying this period of time, and and this groundswell, this this the citizens' action against the development. What do you take away from from that? Well, reading these these uh, comments and letters uh, dating back to the '40s and '30s, I I just found it so inspiring to 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 hear how important this landscape and, and, and the wildlife and everything was to these people. Uh, and, and to realize that, that this is not a new issue, it's not a new effort to protect nature, it goes back a long time in our country, and that it's simply something that we have to carry forward. Uh, we've been given this legacy of wilderness, and I think it falls on our shoulders and our children's shoulders to carry this forward. Looks like uh, hopefully Justin is calling back in. We'll try to get his uh, his call in here. Last, oh, oh, it's Margaret. Uh, Margaret, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Oh, yes. Oh, we'll have you turn down your radio, 
Margaret. Margaret, mm-hmm. Margaret Oh, good morning. Um, um, I, um, Hopefully she'll turn down her radio there. There we go. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Margaret, go ahead. Oh, good morning. Um, I wanted to say that I, I think that um, all the uh, motorized vehicles should be banned from the wilderness area, and people should be encouraged to hike in there. Okay. And um, more, more maybe hiking clubs would help, uh, where you can have longer and shorter hikes for smaller children and longer ones for adults. Yes, that's and I think something that's that's something uh, Frederick Swanson you have suggested maybe some areas where the whole family can get you know. Yes, you can always, even in a wilderness area, you can always hike in just a, a few miles. Uh, I remember when our daughter was young, uh, and we'd have her on a little backpack. I'd, I'd, we'd lug lug her in, um, oh, just two or three miles, just just far enough to get away from the the road, and set up a camp, and she could play uh, on a, next to the stream, and uh, you know, we'd have some things we had to haul out afterwards. But uh, it introduced her to. Well, to, to, to the sights, the sounds, the smells of, of nature. And I think that's carried on in her life, as it has with so many other young people. And now she wants to do these things on her own. And then we have this email from uh, Mon, um, uh, who describes himself as a trail steward. He says, the Red Cliffs Desert Reserve in southwestern Utah has some of the most amazing hiking trails in the state, running from Hurricane through Washington and Ivans. Google it, he says. So there's a great suggestion from, from Mon. Yes, and thank you for your work in uh, helping care for our trails. Yes, certainly. We'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. The book is Where Roads Will Never Reach. It's out from University of Utah Press. And environmental historian Frederick Swanson has been my guest for the hour. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Tom. It's been very interesting. And this conversation can continue. You can email us at upraxis at gmail.com or go to our website, upr.org. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Athletics. Announcing the 2015 Mountain West football schedules, six home games including Boise State, BYU, and Colorado State. Aggie football ticket information available at the USU Athletics ticket office or 1-888-U-STATE-1. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. Fossils are really quite rare. A very specific set of conditions have to be met in order to create one. Most living things decompose fairly rapidly upon death, leaving no trace of their existence behind. In order to create a fossil, this process of decomposition needs to be halted fairly rapidly, which typically means that the body is quickly covered by some kind of sediment, like sand or soil or mud. For this reason, most fossils are found embedded in sedimentary rock. If pressure and moisture levels are just right, over the course of millions of years, the organism's molecules will slowly be replaced by minerals from the surrounding sediments, eventually turning bone into stone. Only somewhere around one in a billion bones will make it through this process. 
From there, the fossil has to remain intact and identifiable through eons of tectonic plate movement, earthquakes, and mountain uplift. Then, in order to be found, it has to be located near enough to the Earth's surface and in such a place where a human might come across it. Some geologists estimate that only one in 10,000 species that have ever lived have made it into the known fossil record, which makes me wonder what discoveries still await us. Fortunately for us, prehistoric Utah was a place where fossilization happened with some regularity, as evidenced by places like Dinosaur National Monument and the Escalante Petrified Forest. Did you know that Utah has a state fossil? That distinction goes to the Allosaurus, a predatory dinosaur that thrived during the late Jurassic period. Numerous skeletons found in east-central Utah range in size from 10 to 40 feet in length, meaning this fearsome creature may have rivaled its more famous cousin, Tyrannosaurus rex, for top predator status. With such a rich fossil history, it's not out of the question that you might stumble onto something truly amazing during a routine hike. Can you keep your find? Well, that depends on two things the type of fossil, and whose land it was found on. On public lands in Utah, fossils of vertebrates cannot be collected, while fossils of invertebrates and plants can be. Private landowners have full rights to the fossils found on their property. With all fossils, though, it's a great idea to report your find to the U.S. Geological Survey so that your discovery can be documented for public or scientific research, display, or education. Fossil creation is an incredible phenomenon that has allowed us to glimpse the Earth's history in ways that would otherwise be completely hidden. Thanks to fossils, we can envision a prehistoric landscape filled with giant ferns, enormous dragonflies, long-necked allosauruses, and flying pterodactyls. Without the evidence in the fossil record, I doubt that even the most imaginative person among us could have envisioned such an amazing array of life. For the Stokes Nature Center and Wild About Utah, this is Andrea Liberator. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. For more than 30 years, working to preserve the wilderness at the heart of the Colorado Plateau. More about protecting Utah's wilderness heritage at suwa.org. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.